Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to to the New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies podcast series. I am your host, Amanda Jean Swain, at the University of California, Irvine. Today, we'll be talking with Julianne First about her book, Flowers Through Concrete, Explorations in Soviet Hippie Land, published in 2021 by the Oxford University Press. Flowers Through Concrete is a chronological history of Soviet hippies tracing their beginnings in the 1960s through the movement's maturity in the 1970s and ritualization in the 1980s. It is also a rich analysis of key aspects of Soviet hippiedom, which we'll be talking about in this podcast. First makes a number of important arguments in Flowers Through Concrete. Despite obvious antagonisms, she argues that Soviet hippies and late Soviet socialist reality mesh so well that a stable, symbiotic, although hostile, relationship emerged. She asserts that personal evidence, such as oral history, is one of the most exciting historical sources whose weaknesses sometimes work for rather than against the historian. And she engages seriously with and makes visible the role of her own authorial self-reflection in historical analysis. And last but not least, as First herself says, The story of Soviet hippies is a really good story. So welcome to New Books in Russian Studies, Juliana. Well, thank you for having me. So please tell us about yourself and how you became interested in Russia, the Soviet Union, and especially Soviet hippies. God, yeah. Okay, my name is Juliana Fürst. Um, I'm originally from Germany. And um, actually, I have just recently um, ended up back in Germany. But in between, um, I spent most of my academic career in the United Kingdom, where I went um, already as an undergraduate, um, and then wrote my uh, doctoral thesis at the London School of Economics, um, worked at Oxford, and then later in full employment at the University of Bristol, where actually most of the hippie book was written. Um, How did I come to Russia and Eastern Europe? I think it's a sort of confluence of a personal family history and literally my generation. I came of age um, or of conscious uh, political and cultural age um, just as the Iron Curtain was falling and the Velvet uh, revolutions were taking place. um, And living in Germany, of course, I was sort of on the front line and I I knew all I wanted to do was go and see what's east of where I lived. And actually, because I'm from Munich, I was really quite close to to the Iron Curtain. I mean, Prague was only three hours away. And um, but I I realized as I was starting to travel eastwards that really what I wanted to understand was was the big brother, um, Russia. Um, And that's where I ended up for the first time in 1995. And at Leningrad State University in some dormitory where on the day of my arrival, somebody got shot. Um, And then I I learned Russian and I've never really looked um, back. Um, The other thing is that probably my own family is is rooted in the East, not quite as far away as as, as Russia, but uh, certainly 
in areas which are sort of mixed of Poland and, and Germany. And I always felt that sort of interest and affinity because um, already in the stories of my, my mother and my grandmother, there was always this sort of promised East. So rather than the promised West, which is so important to my subjects, uh, for me, it was always the, the East uh, which, which drew me. Uh, and the hippies... Now, from the distance, I think it was fate because I think it was uh, such an amazing topic for me at the right time. But really, it started with a simple um, order. It was it was an, a, a quite um, business-like transaction. I, my time in Oxford was coming to an end, and um, one of the professors who liked me, Professor Robert Gardea, had a project on 1968, um, and he wanted to have a Soviet specialist on the project. And he asked me if I want to become part um, of that project. And he applied for a big grant and um, they got the money. And even though I actually ended up getting employment in that year at the University of Bristol, um, I stayed on, on the project and I thought, um, well, 68 in the Soviet Union sounds interesting. As it turns out, I, there wasn't much going on in 68 in the Soviet Union, very disappointingly compared to all the other people working on the project. But I found a small note in the OSA archive in Budapest in the Chronicle of Current Events, which um, detailed a hippie demonstration in 1971. Um, and I was intrigued and my little didn't know that this was the beginning of a 12-year journey to follow and, and trace these these hippies. Um, and really, that's, that's how it all started. I think that's one of the most exciting things about being a historian is those little things you find that, that suddenly open up a whole world of, of, of study and research and and I'm very excited that you followed up on that little note because now we have this book. And you call the first part of the book a short course in the history of the Soviet hippie movement and its Sistema, which is a play on Stalin's history of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, a short course. And it's both a great example of Stieb, which is subverting Soviet speak, and the first thorough chronological history of the Soviet hippie movement. So to just get us grounded before we um, move into the more thematic uh, um, discussion, can you start by giving us an overview of the Soviet hippie movement? Yeah. Um, I mean, I there were many more hippies uh, than I thought when I first um, found that little um, piece in the Chronicle of Current Events. My assumption was there were a few dozens of hippies and I'm going to find hopefully most of them and then I'm going to write an article um, and as I then, as I realized, um, as I started out, interestingly, I started out not knowing, but I started out in, in one of the very earliest hippie centers, because how I went about, um, and this is sort of before social media, I must say, um, or before social media really took hold in that generation in Russia, I asked a German writer, if he, who was a Russian German, if he had any idea where I would find hippies. And I just had a hunch. He's, he's actually a little bit younger than the people I was looking for. And he said, he doesn't know, but he knows a woman who is a singer and she follows a hippie crowd. And I looked her up. Her name is Umka. Um, and she had a concert in Riga. And um, I literally booked a ticket and I went to this concert. Um, and um, it was true. I found my first hippies there. And, and in fact, Riga and the whole Baltic region, um, where probably you can trace the earliest hippie communities to. So there is evidence that from about 66 onwards, um, people in the sort of Baltic uh, borderline uh, towns um, 
were imitating wanting to be hippies, called themselves hippies. They certainly did at that stage still look quite differently from the Western species um, insofar that long hair really was unacceptable um, at, at that time. Um, and obviously hair also needs some time to grow. You can't just say overnight, um, I'm going to become a hippie with, with long hair. But clearly um, the, the sort of information traffic and also the general atmosphere in these newly acquired territories of the Soviet Union allowed the, the birth um, a little bit earlier than, than in the Russian heartlands. But at the same time, or almost literally a few years later, and then in Moscow, one can date it back to about 1967, um, you have the first sort of hippie communities um, assembling, um, especially in, in Moscow and, and also in Leningrad. And I maybe should add that I very quickly came to that problem, what actually is a hippie? Do I, am I the arbiter of who is a hippie? Um, in order to carry out this research. And I decided I would basically take anybody who declares him or herself um, a hippie. So these early communities can sometimes be quite, um, if you look closer at them, that it could almost be sort of alternative Komsomol organizations. That was less true for the, the Western fringe, where people were very well informed because journals came over from Poland um, there was Finnish television in um, Estonia. Um, there was obviously radio broadcasting in, in mo most of the Soviet Union. But in other places, for example, in Sebastopol, where there was also early hippie community made up of the children of um, local officers, um, they had an oath um, and they had entrance requirements and they had a particular rituals. And so there it, it sounded a lot more um, like what they, of course, knew from, from their own youth uh, with a little bit of a hippie smattering. Uh, clad on. But it didn't take long. And um, interestingly, it's the Soviet Union itself, which um, probably was most responsible for educating its youngsters about um, hippies. Because this phenomenon, of course, in the West, it was a little bit difficult for um, Soviet um, people charged with reporting or dealing with youth of what, what to make of it. I mean, here was a group of youngsters who were anti-material, anti-Vietnam War, um, to a certain extent, anti-American, anti-capitalist. And, and all of this, of course, smacked like as if they could be allies. And obviously their exterior um, uh, was not quite to the liking um, of the Soviet propaganda machine. I, I sort of uh, don't want personalize right now. Um, it was interesting enough that several journalists and several really quite famous journalists were dispatched to write about that phenomenon. And what happened was a, a couple of really seminal articles um, which have been read by um, a really surprising high number of anybody who identified themselves as a hippie in the Soviet Union. I mean, something like 80-90% of people I interviewed I, all referred back to that article in 1968 in um called uh, Travels into the Hippie Land. Um, it was written by Genrich Baravik, who was a big uh, Pravda journalist in in New York, and he had help from his young daughter and a friend um, who were diplomats or journalist children living in New York and who had latched onto the New York hippie community. Um, and unsurprisingly, therefore, the article is, I always call it wistful. It's sort of, um, it's definitely not negative. Um, it's slightly melancholic. And the gist is, here are these lost youngsters who really do these amazing things. They drop where they, they sleep wherever they drop. They travel without money. They don't want anything. They're the complete antithesis of the ugly American 
And of course, in the end, there's a certain like, well, I mean, they're completely clueless because they don't uh, have any ideology. They don't uh, reunite with the great left Marxist movement. But overall, you read this article you know, and it's completely understandable that youngsters read it and thought, I want to be like that. Um, it, it exudes a freedom um, and difference, which even I found appealing after so many years. So that comes out in 68. And then there's a couple of articles following over the years. Um, and um, that's how people learn what it means to be um, a hippie. Um, and Moscow, of course, being... Undoubtedly, I mean, the most informal city in the Soviet Union, I, I would say, I would argue it is also very, very important for the development of the hippie movement. And partly because there was one guy called Yura Barakov, um, known as the name Sonsa, Sunny Boy, basically. Um, and he started to really become an organizer. And it's, it's interesting. Again, it's a person who might in a different life maybe have become a revolutionary or Komsomol organizer. But because the times are as they are and he likes rock and roll and he likes jeans and he likes cool clothing, there's no space for him in the official system. So he puts all his energies into this alternative world and he creates what comes to be known as the Sistema, um, which is a um, Soviet hippie peculiarity that the hippies um, basically... They are definitely beginning not hostile to the word hippie, unlike in the US where the word is... In, 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 Initially, an insult. That's not uh, the case for for Soviet hippies. But Systema is their own word. But it's of course interesting, as they use the same word as what is in slang uh, used for the Soviet regime, which was also called the Systema. Um, so you have these two words operating for two different things in the same sphere. But of course, there is already it's it's partly job, as you say. It's it's sort of like well, we are we are kind of using their word, but when we are obviously different. But it's also a challenge. It's definitely a challenge of a certain lifestyle. Um, and it's, of course, it also reflects their upbringing as, as youngsters who are not content to just drop out. And it's that sort of sense of having to represent something, of having a life that somehow amounts to something bigger than personal pleasure is very deeply ingrained. So anyway, Sonsa starts organizing this Sistema, which kind of grows organically, but he is a big, big element of keeping it all together. And it all comes to a head um, in um, a demonstration in 1971, which still puzzles me because it's it's one of these events. You think, how did the Soviet Union ever manage to keep that um, secret? Um, the idea is, is sort of... It represents all the sort of ambiguities this Soviet hippie movement has at that moment. Sonsa thinks that um, hippies need a demonstrations. And of course, in the West, there have been demonstrations happening um, quite frequently. Last on the 1st of um, May in Washington, D.C., which was quite brutally uh, put down and that was widely reported in Pravda. But actually, I have no, Sonsa has died. I have no evidence that he consciously links that. It's That's my just my own inference um but he decides he's going to ask for permission to have an anti-vietnam demonstration and while these days it's it might sound naive and it's very interesting hippies i interview later they tell them about this demonstrations like later generation of hippies they think it's completely crazy but at the time it didn't seem so unbelievable um the Komsomol had undergone a, a kind of transformation of trying to be more open um, during the thought period to, to reform itself. Um, Anti-Vietnam demonstration was fully aligned with Soviet goals. Um, 
And he's first denied, but then suddenly two days before the supposed demonstration on the 1st of June, which is um, significant because that's the day of the defense of the rights of children, he suddenly gets permission. Um, and it happens what it happens um, about... And here the numbers are very difficult to say because there's absolutely no official document I could ever locate. But at least about 600, possibly up to 3,000 people assembled in the courtyard of the Moscow State University um, with banners um, saying, why does the Vietnamese children, why does a Vietnamese child cry um, down with the war? And these banners all and the writing had all been approved beforehand by most Soviet and Sunset made sure that they align. But the, the, uh, it's in the, in the courtyard, in the inner courtyard, uh, what's called the psychodrome, so not the outer psychodrome, but the inner psychodrome, and, and um, everything is shut, and people in civilian clothing and some militia men um, are coming out and say, quiet, uh, we, we, and, and you will all be taken and to by buses. And initially there's confusion, uh, are we going by bus to the American embassy where the demonstration was supposed to end up? Um, but it then becomes very quickly apparent they're all going to several police precincts in the um, in Moscow. Um, and it's basically a big coup by the authorities to get a good picture of who is involved and who counts themselves um, as a hippie um, in Moscow. What is really fascinating is that there is absolutely no trace um, of any document, even though a lot of the classified documents for this period have been declassified in the Komsomol archive, in the party archive. And I really think it it has been purposefully cleaned up. Um, there's rumor that um, the daughter of the interior minister was among the arrested. There's certainly um, a lot of uh, general KGB children, the whole nomenclatura. Um, so it, it was um, it was a bit embarrassing, obviously, for the people who, who did it. Um, there doesn't seem to have been much immediate effect. Uh, people at maximum got two weeks of sort of work assignment. Most were let out overnight. And only a year later, when Nixon comes to Moscow, a lot of the men who were rounded up are conscripted forcefully in the Chinese army, which actually was quite dangerous because there was a proper war actually going on on the Chinese border, which is another one of these really well-kept secrets of Soviet history. Um, but this demonstration is important for, for a variety of reasons, because it kind of changes what was initially a sort of kind of fashion, maybe even a fat you didn't have to decide too closely. I mean, you could be happy. You could be a student. Um, I mean, you, you got sometimes if you were really into it, especially if you're a man with long hair or proper attire, you got sometimes picked up um, on the street and put uh, in front of a Komsomol patrol point. But in general, um, there wasn't much persecution. And the demonstration really shows uh, we are not going to tolerate this. There is not going to be homegrown hippies, um, despite of all the overlap and ideology with communism. Um, that's, this is, this, this, here's the line. Um, and what happens to the hippie movement then, it contracts, it becomes smaller um, than in the early 70s, but the people who are in it are more committed. And in fact, they become a completely alternative universe to a certain extent. Um, these are people who don't work in the Soviet system. I mean, they work, but they work in these kind of jobs which become famous in Grebenchikov's song about the courtyard workers and storage workers. Um, they, they work in menial jobs. A, a great number of them become uh, act models in um, as various uh, art uh, institutions, uh, which must be about the ultimate hippie job uh, uh, because you're naked 
um, as nature made you and you earn some money and you get a stamp in your workbook, which was, of course, the all important thing in the Soviet Union. But as I say, these, these people, because they're more committed to actually build up a Sistema now, which um, is so stable that it lasts right until the end um, of the Soviet Union. And we, one can see several generations. Sonso himself, actually, I would say, breaks on the persecutions after the uh, demonstrations. He clearly always was somebody who liked to drink. Um, he becomes a complete drunkard. He's probably um, not absolutely sure, pressed into informing for the KGB. Um, and he fades as, as a leader. But what he has set up is picked up by, by others, not, notably in Moscow by a couple who are very linked to um, the, the art scene. At that point, that's um, a woman called Ophelia and her um, husband, Igor Diktaryuk, who was known as the Jimi Hendrix of Moscow. And for a while, they worked together with um, the nonconformist artists. They take part in several of the exhibitions um, which are happening in Moscow first under open air in uh, Belyaeva and Ismailova. Actually, in Belyaeva, there are no hippies, but in Ismailova and then at the Vidyanha, where they have their own little corner, the art collective Volosy um, hair and make a hippie flag, which gets confiscated and... I would say that's in many ways the first real blossoming of this hippie movement. Um, and also they start to really find themselves as Soviet hippies, while the first wave is much more imitating the Western model. The second wave is really starting to, um, to find a way of life that is uh, particularly Soviet. Um, they also um, start to travel uh, less um, Ophelia herself, but other Moscow um, hippies uh, take up traveling as a, as a real ritual. And this is when they start to connect with these other hippie communities which have been happening for a long time, especially in the Baltic. Um, and they realize that Tallinn is this a super happening place and a little bit more relaxed. So Tallinn becomes this kind of hippie capital. They establish um, a sort of summer rituals in the Crimea or on uh, other places in the Black Sea coast. Um, and they, they become more aware of themselves as their own parallel history. So they start making books with their photographs. Um, they have um, days which they commemorate, among them the 1st of June. Um, there's also something called the beginning of the season, the 1st of May. And, and they really have these travel routes. And they, they very much know we are many. We're not alone. We're not alone in Moscow. We're not alone in Leningrad. Um, we have a Sistema. Um, and that, I would say, comes to its second uh, flowering in the end of the 70s when they established um, a permanent uh, summer hippie camp in, in Gawa, which is uh, near Riga in, in Latvia, um, and which lasts also for about 10 years um, every year. Um, and thousands um, of people come through, somewhere around two or three thousands each summer. And it, of course, becomes a complete hub of exchange of information but it also shows you can live a different life in the Soviet Union it becomes a sort of kind of beacon of otherness and while the numbers of course remain small in the Soviet Union as a whole I'm, I would say probably around 20 25,000 committed hippies all across um, they they're so visible um, and they, they, of course, have friends then in their hometowns who are less committed and these friends have friends. And one can sort of see how the whole Soviet society kind of hippifies a little bit. So the hippies never become mainstream, but the Soviet Union becomes a bit more 
hippie-like. So the, the attire of the um, what was absolutely impossible in the late 60s, the big bell-button trousers, the long hair, the shirts with the big collars, the flower patches, um, all of that um, doesn't, of course, go straight into the mainstream. But if one looks, it becomes much more accepted. And by the end of the 70s, most creative people like filmmakers and journalists, they actually also have long hair and bell-button jeans. And the hippies are still always a little bit more more colorful. And, and, and as I say, they remain this sort of kind of alternative society because they really try to minimize the the contact they have to the main system. But as we will discuss, I'm sure, um, there are many, many points where one can see that they're still very much part of it. Um, my main focus in the book really stops with the 1980s Olympics, um, partly because there were many arrests then um, as by among dissidents as well, sort of um, every non-conformist in the Soviet Union was sitting in the uh, crazy house, as they call it, the psychiatric hospital for the um, Olympics. And it meant there was another change of generation um, happening, not immediately or not exactly in 1980, but young people who had only just joined uh, became then the defining force for the 1980s, where people who had been active for many years were literally tired out uh, by the constant um, persecution and, and went more mainstream. Um, and in the 1980s, it, it, it's again a very numerous uh, movement. And as I say, I don't follow it to the same um, extent. It remains the same system of, of traveling and, and um, systemas in different towns which are connected. And the really interesting bit is, however, when Perestroika comes um, around, the hippies leave that sort of very apolitical and escapist corner they have carved for themselves out and do become quite um, sizable forces um, in most major towns, especially in Lviv, uh, but also in Moscow, and they are on the barricades at the 1991 putsch. Um, so in the end, very end, they do find their political voice. And I, I think it shows a little bit that they were a protest movement after all. It's, it's one of the big discussions I have with them at, uh, themselves because they don't like to be called political or protest. Um, well, actually, I would say um, their alternative lifestyle, their counterculture is, of course, a protest. And when push came to shove, uh, they showed um, that they were an opposition after all. So that was a very quick run through a lot of history. Yeah. Um, and it is, um, it's amazing how much you were able to uh, put together in terms of a, a history, a chronological um, history of the hippies um, with the detail that you um, provide in the book, um, given that there are so few records. So tell us about the sources you used um, and not only interviews, which you conducted a lot of interviews, but um, the personal archives that you discovered and social media, which um, became a really interesting way to um, get information. So if you could just briefly talk about that and, and your approach, um, which I think was more open-minded than a lot of times we um, take as historians. Yeah, no, it was actually, I must say, for a while I was very proud of it. I sort of have been a little bit overtaken by history because a lot of the stuff is now much more accessible on social media or the internet than it was when I started piecing it together when there really was um, nothing. So initially I relied very heavily on on interviews. Um, 
I was in a way I was happy that I did it before social media really became a big thing because I think if I would do it now I would be handed to everybody who was on Facebook um, by the fact that then nobody was on Facebook um, some people were on contact here some people were on live journal but mainly I was handed by telephone and it made it meant I interviewed people who never went onto social media and whose voices would otherwise be quite lost and are by now drowned by that sort of uh, cacophony of of, um, of evidence coming out on, on mainly Facebook, but also a bit on Twitter and all these sort of uh, smaller chat rooms and discussion rooms um, popping up in, in the Russian sphere. But so my, my initial approach was um, very much an oral history approach, especially because that project I started out with the 1960 around 1968 project in Oxford was designed as our um, oral history um, project but of course it didn't take long I mean I think very first maybe second interview um, actually they're interesting the very first interview I did I did with a guy called Dan Kaminsky and the first interview he stood me up because he got arrested in a shop um, and um, so we then met and he told me the story that he got arrested and he put it down to the fact that he had long hair and policemen were suspicious of him. Later on, I learned that he was still a big drug user and that probably he did do shoplifting um, and there probably was a reason why he got um, arrested. He also, we talked very long and very interestingly, and all he gave me was about three very heavy black cups of coffee. Um, so I got came out of the interview completely wired. Um, but... The story, I mean, that already, that first interview, um, of course, he told me a lot of stuff which were interesting about his life and hippiedom in the early 70s. But it also a, gave me an idea of this is a completely different breed of people I'm interviewing. I used to interview dissidents um, and uh, they all had this nice apartments with the big bookshelves. And when I came, I got tea and I was fed and... Um, and it, it, it just was completely different, as I say. I mean, the, the cup of coffee, that's, that's clearly what he lived on. And that's what I had to live on, no matter how long the interview. And the fact that, of course, he stood me up because he got arrested. It was so, in many ways, and now, thank God, it was so typical, of course. Um, so I realized that, of course, I, I take these interviews, but um, I don't really come back with the interview. I come with back with my whole impression of uh, where I interviewed them, what they looked like, uh, what their apartment smelled like, where they lived. And I started having a, a field journal without yet really realizing that, of course, what I was doing is breaching a disciplinary border between history and anthropology to a certain extent. And then, um, so Dan Kaminsky didn't have any pictures, but the second interview, um, I remember, already uh, showed me pictures. Um, and he was also a very nice guy. He was called Sergi Sori. Um, he lived, um, yeah, that was the funny thing. He was a super countercultural guy, but he lived in this very Soviet apartment with the sort of a wooden bookshelf, you know, one of these heavy um, fake wood bookshelves you had over the whole wall and, and Soviet wallpaper. I mean, so the non europeiske Ramund. Um, and we had, uh, he, I got cake there. Um, he, he had family, but he died very quickly. And he showed me these amazing pictures of Sonsa and very early pictures. And I, I then, after he died in the next half year, I tried to, um, uh, to get it back in touch with his daughter and, and get hold of some of the pictures or take better copies. And I couldn't. Um, they had all disappeared because all I had was a mobile phone number and nobody knew where he they went and they left the apartment. And um, and I, I realized that um, there was other stuff which, which needed preserving. And especially, 
if I wanted to work with it, I needed to have better access. And um, so I, I started a sort of sideline, um, which, which you know, um, collecting archives, hippie archives, which I deposited in the Wendy Museum, which is in a different story of how that happened. But they were basically open to that. Um, but it also meant that I myself started paying more attention of, I, I started asking for this stuff. Um, and what came out is, is, is a big conglomerate. I mean, mainly pictures, but also notebooks. Um, from one person, I got a list of um, all the drug addicts she made uh, of Moscow, um, like a few days before she died. For some reason, she had this desire to make this list, but it was super, super useful. So um I, I i ended up with a with a syringe um and um and i i started to think so what what do i what do i make out of out of all these these things and and really what it meant is that um i i started to what i do now i basically i wanted to tell the story of like what did they tell me and how it how did this present situation of what i saw and how i encountered my interview partners, how did this affect of how I approached their testimony? Um, and I wanted to basically make transparent that moment of when I take the interview and I make an analysis and I write a sentence, why do I come down with this analysis and what other factors are influencing it? And that included the wallpaper and it included the fact that I had waited for three hours for this first interview, uh, waiting if this guy would come back to his really, frankly, rather depressing department on the Wasowski Chaussee. Um, and it also, of course, included the stories of when later on I, I, I came closer into what I would call the dark heart of, of Hippidem, all these drug addicts. And I interviewed people who got um, crazily drunk while I was interviewing them and started fighting and scratching each other. And um, and all of this, of course, is sort of was part of the story. And in many ways, I sort of kind of almost wish it would be even more in there. But it's, of course, also there's a sort of line of um, you want to keep an anonymity and you have to be respectful. And in the end, I wanted to write a story about the 1970s. But I realized I didn't want to completely blend it out. Um, and then as, as a time dragged on and my book project dragged on, time sort of kind of started working in my favor um, because I suddenly got documents which actually related to hippies after first having come to the conclusion there were no official or they, I couldn't get any official documents. So the, um, the secret uh, OPIS one in the Komsomol archive opened up. Uh, that was one. And then Ukraine happened and the Ukrainian KGB archive opened up big time. Um, and that really was uh, another interesting revelation, not because it told me so many stories, um, but A, because it showed the sheer extent of how many hippies there were dotted all across the country, especially in the early 1970s, many, many more than I would have ever known otherwise. Um, and the second thing, it, I had a couple of stories where I had KGB documents and I had an interview and it allowed me to compare how useful these KGB documents are, uh, what are the different stories. Um, and that was um, interesting insofar as we always tend to think of these KGB documents as the super documents. It's like, yeah, this is where all the truth is located. And um, I had one story where I really had the... Um, the interview with somebody and this exact same same story in the KGB document. And what was interesting was they misspelled the name of one of their main sources. And you think like, this is the KGB. Um, and they're misspelling the name of, of their source or of one of the main protagonists who then my interview partner said, actually, he was the 
the KGB spy or he was the the source, which I couldn't verify and, and therefore I, I I I didn't sort of really include. But it also it, it showed a, a whole lot of other discrepancies, and it suddenly makes you realize that this sort of same I have this enormous scrutiny towards my oral history sources in terms of veracity. Um, but also in terms of really trying to decode the subjectivity. But actually, the same applies for these KGB documents. Clearly, somebody was writing that up who couldn't be bothered to look up um, the name. And it was clear they, they so wanted to, to make that look like a successful operation, while the, the result, the actual story coming out of the hippie was actually much more nuanced. Um, they wanted to prevent a hippie wedding, but in the end, the wedding did take place and some hippies did come to the wedding. I mean, it didn't it wasn't quite as big as it was planned, but... Um, it, it definitely it, it showed a bit of a more an, an interesting, more interesting interaction and dynamic between uh, repressive organs and 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 that kind of alternative life. Um, so yeah, so I ended up actually in the end, it did not end up being an oral history. It ended up a really really mixed hi history. And I think the biggest innovation really was that I tried at least in some chapters to be um, really transparent about my crafting history um, and how my own experiences and possibly even my own background, which we discussed <laughs> right in the beginning, kind of informed um, to what kind of conclusions I came. Yeah, we'll talk some more about that when we talk about um, the chapter on um, hippie women. But I'd like to start with the um, first chapter that you have in the second part of the book um, where you, which are more thematic, and that is um, the chapter on ideology. And um, it does seem odd to talk about hippies and ideology because of course that was something that hippies were rebelling against. But at the same time, um, you, um, as you pointed out, that there was this kind of conundrum that a lot of the things that hippies um, stood for and that they adopted from the West or um, from the hippies that they were um, modeling themselves after, you know, this anti-capitalist, anti-materialism um, came perilously close to Soviet ideology um, despite their Western origins. So how did the hippies define what it meant to be hippie while still trying not to um, fall into this um, overly defining themselves? Um, and how did they um, do that in relationship to Soviet ideology in the Soviet state? Yeah, I mean, that was the hardest chapter to write, actually. It, it took me absolute ages um, and because there were so many contradictions. Um, but the Eureka moment um, actually came and this is, uh, I'm, it's not in the book, but um, I, I tell you now because we are following the theme of sort of my own subjectivity there. I went, I lived for a while in the States and I went to um, Woodstock, uh, obviously, but I actually went, I mean, the concert wasn't in Woodstock, but I went to the art colony in Woodstock, um, whose name now escapes me. There are several art colonies, but it's one of them that sort of was very active in the early 20th century. And um, I, I read that they did all these experiments of going around with no clothing, etc. And of course, it suddenly struck me, yeah, I mean, basically, they did hippiedom before hippies. Um, and where did that all come from? And um, I realized that actually, if I look for a common route, I go back to sort of 19th, 20th century um, ideas on the one spectrum, a really quite hardcore 
communist political ideas, but also that sort of kind of idea of reforming life, which of course in Germany and especially was very prominent, the sort of experimentations um, of, of how to, to free the body as well as the soul, as well as the spirit. And, and they were all left wing and they all have a certain kind of um, common root. And I suddenly realized um, it's really bizarre that basically what's happening in the Soviet Union when the hippie idea came over is that you had two different branches of this kind of left-wing lifestyle reformist idea meeting each other, um, having completely developed differently um, over the years. Um, and now suddenly they have to make sense of each other. Um, and that that is sort of where this idea of this hippiedom as a boomerang kind of um, came about. That I, I ended up arguing that... Um, in many ways, of course, what's happening when sort of the Western idea of hippodom comes back is um, a kind of bastard version of a revolutionary ideology comes um, comes back. And, um, and that, of course, is partly, of course, of why the official system in the end feels so threatened. Um, it's also, however, I think one of the explanatory uh, models of why hippodom had such a great success in the Soviet Union, because even though there are later punks and there are, um, and in some parts of the Soviet Union, very prominent and there are hip hoppers, etc., really the success of the hippies is unmatched. There was something in that ideology which chimed really well with Soviet socialist youth, and I think it is because in the end a lot of the um, higher ideals are prepared in, in Soviet education. The sort of idea that somehow you stand for more, that uh, that you are kind of cosmic, that um, uh, that you, your life has to have purpose. Also the idea of innocence, uh, the celebration of children. Um, so the hippie ideology as it develops in the, in, the, in the socialist sphere is an interesting breed between a kind of reconnection of really deep uh, socialist ideas. I mean, so deep that they're not like the everyday uh, attitudes, but the, um, the sort of what's really behind what drove once the sort of kind of revolutionary ideal. And then at the same time, a good doses of anti-Sovietness. Um, and, and this is, of course, in the, in the Soviet Union, everybody was defined. Like, wherever you went, you had you to write your short autobiography of, like, this is my father. I mean, in former times, you still had to say, this is, like, I'm a peasant or a worker. Or you, you had to sort of anchor yourself in all these different um, points. And the hippies completely reacted against this, and they became undefinition or indefinition was their hallmark. So you had to sort of kind of funny... Um, two poles on the one hand the sort of long left-wing liberationist individualist uh, tradition and on the other hand um the sort of very immediate anti-soviet um reaction and what it allowed what is interesting it basically allowed a broad enough church that a lot of people could find themselves for a very long time and of course in their way in their indefinition was their strength the fact that Nothing. There was absolutely nothing in hippie ideology which, which was ever really cut in in, in stone um, in the Soviet case, um, and therefore it meant that a whole lot of different people could um, adhere to the, the Soviet hippie idea without being challenged too too strongly. So 
you you have people who and in, in later life you can see you have people who actually were quite nationalist um, as well as people who were basically kind of part of the new left um, but the church was sort of broad um, enough because it it remained so vague between these two poles but I think you're already getting a sense of why I found this chapter so hard to write because it really I found it was a lot of mental acrobatics and it was very unfair because the hippies refused to do this mental acrobatics. They're completely unfazed by all these contradictions. Um, the fact that they love America, but they are, of course, against the uh, Vietnam War. Uh, the fact that they actually are Soviet patriots who think that a Soviet army is um, is a glorious thing, while at the same time they claim that we be pacifist. All of these contradictions, they couldn't be bothered less by. But I was really troubled. I tried to make <laughs> sense of it. So. <laughs> Uh, so that actually kind of leads well into your next chapter and the next question, which is about Kaif and that uh, hippie life is uh, about Kaif. And the simplest explanation is that Kaif is like a state of high, but that's really too simple. So explain Kaif for us um, and um what that meant, what that looked like, and um, maybe also address the issue of drug use among uh, Soviet hippies. Yeah, so Kaif is a really interesting term because it is super prominent, but it is the one term really that has absolutely no uh, Western connotation. So in many other areas, you, you see that Western influence. But Kaif is a... Um, a Russian term. It was used already by Dostoevsky, um, but it really comes to prominence in the late 60s with the hippies. Um, it, it's an Arabic term and it denotes the kind of pleasure you experience in um, in paradise. And that includes, that can include um, a sexual pleasure. It uh, It's mostly a pleasure of the mind and the spirit. Um, it can also be ecstatic. And, and in, in all these different facets, it gets taken into, into the hippie uh, vocabulary. And um, every hippie had their, their own um, kaif. So I think initially it was really definitely a, a, um, a related to the sense of community, to the music, um, to, uh, to that sense of, of difference. Um, and then over the years, it became more and more associated uh, with the, the drug um, usage without ever losing any of the other um, connotations. Um, and I, I came to it um, actually very early on. I wrote an article which preceded the book where um, I argued that the hippies are better understood as an emotional community partly because I was struggling so much on that ideological side. And I was like, I, I couldn't really put every under one banner, but I realized that the feel um, they they seem to have experienced in, in that period was very similar. And this is also how they are finding themselves now on social media. What they do basically is they're evoking that feel of traveling, of taking drugs, of being together, of listening to something a lot of it has to do with the language. It's heavily influenced by the slang. The slang itself is the feel. And all of that basically used to run along uh, uh, the word kaif, even though they're now, interestingly enough, don't use it anymore. It's one of the few words which has gone out of fashion, having been so so prominent. Um, what is interesting about the Soviet drug kaif is that um, they were very good at imitating many things, but the one thing they couldn't imitate is um, what, of course, founded first the Western, especially American hippie community, that sort of usage of LSD and therefore that um, 
alternative universe they experienced when when high. Um, and I think it, it shows the sort of ingenuity. Um, there actually was later on some LSD floating around because somebody had access to um, LSD produced in the Swarovski uh, Institute as uh, a psychiatric experimentation. Um, but even then, people didn't really latch onto it too much. They they had already created their own uh, homegrown uh, varieties of, of, of achieving kaif. And basically, they're in three different categories. Uh, one is um, cannabis um, in all sorts of forms. Um, the second one is opiates, um, especially initially morphine, which was quite easier to get in the Soviet Union, sometimes without prescription, sometimes with um, some running some scam. And the third of uh, mixing all sorts of um, amphetamines in official prescription drugs together. Um, that was uh, definitely true of ephedrine, which was a common cold medicine um, and which uh, both taken on its own or taken in a certain mixture produced um, a high. What I found interesting is that the high people describe is very similar to the high of an LSD trip, even though the um, the substances are actually quite different. Um, and I think there's a certain there's certainly a lot of awareness of LSD. There's certain awareness of, of what the hippies um, saw, the sort of especially the sort of intensification of color. Um, and I think that's literally projected onto the drugs which were available. Uh, the one which always amuses me to no end is this uh, Latvian cleaning agent, Sopal, um, which um, introduced, uh, if sniffed, um, a, a very, very strong short-lived um, high, which supposedly by people who are connoisseurs say uh, is not unlike a, a magic mushroom trip um, a, of the greatest potency. So, um, I, but I, I was always, once I delved into that topic, I, I, I marveled um, at the ingenuity of um, basically making do with whatever was um, available, which actually probably leads us into your next question, the next chapter on materiality. Yes, exactly. You did a very good job structuring your chapters because it's uh, helping me structure the interview. And yes, and because when we, even though we think of hippies as, um, not being materialistic, um, uh, things were very important to hippies. And I think particularly in the Soviet Union, because they were markers of identity, um, um, perhaps in a very particular uh, way, perhaps in a stronger way than in the West. So, um, and, and of course, when we think about hippies, I, I would say probably most people think about clothing. Um, so talk to us about um, hippies, uh, hippies' relationship with uh, material objects in the Soviet Union. Yeah, and that's a contradiction hippies all over the world shared, that on the one hand they were immaterial or anti-materialistic. On the other hand, um, they relied very heavily on their exterior markers to, to express themselves. Um, and I got really interested actually in materiality because I came across the... Um, Good Earth catalog in in in, in America, which is the pre-runner of sort of mail order catalogs, but in with the sort of ethnic um, and ethically um, fair bent, and um, and of course because there's more and more argument linking Silicon Valley etc. to to hippie ideology, and I suddenly thought, well, clearly there is a material story for the Soviet hippies um, as as well. I mean, as as now these sort of Western hippies emerge actually as a very American story and an American success story, especially if one takes uh, 
thinks of, of Silicon Valley as a success story. Um, I, I suddenly realized that, of course, actually in their materiality, they, they formed that perfect symbiosis with, with um, late socialism. Um, and again, we have sort of two contradictory forces. Um, on the one hand, there is that Western imitation, and that's most clearly and beautifully expressed in the allure of the American blue jeans, um, which um, has now finally found some attention because not only I, but Natalia Chenyshova and um, Anna Ivanova have, have worked on aspects of um, that allure of the blue jeans for which people were willing to pay a month's salary. And of course, if you have an item that is so rare and has such... Um, high value, you you basically ask um, scams and and uh, loopholes to be created. So uh, just like the Western hippies, Soviet hippies, uh, were not averse to making business despite of all their anti-materialism. And since they lived in a society where most people had a little business on the side and there was a very nicely developed black market, um, that business kept become quite sophisticated. Um, and I have a few stories in the book about people buying workers' uh, clothing and dyeing it and then putting a label on it with some fantasy batch and selling it uh, for 60 rubles as finished jeans, having spent about 10 rubles in the production. And then they used the money to buy the real finished jeans, um, or maybe even better, the Levi jeans um, sort of outfit. Um, and then and it creates all these, uh, these hierarchies and... Um, and, and, wheeling, um, and dealing, but of course it also creates community. So the hippie really is made uh, alongside this materialism. And then there's the other story, which of course, because the genes in the end, they are only genes. And, and, and what's happening there is, is uh, what happens to most subcultures in the West rather quickly in the Soviet Union, not as quickly, is that they get um, commercialized and they get uh, broadened. And suddenly a lot of people have genes and the genes become less valuable and they're less of a mark of extinction. But of course, the subculture wants to be a distinction. The hippie wants to be different. And already actually very early on, um, you start getting these hippie tailors and um, I mean, again, I focused mainly on Moscow, even though I know of um, hippie tailors in Tallinn and, and Riga. And um, but in Moscow, there's there's one woman I found particularly fascinating called Sveta Markova, who tailored on the side clothing for Kremlin wives and Ala Pogachova. But she also clad the whole rock and roll community in, in, in Moscow in this beautiful, uh, very elaborate um, jeans with incredibly wide bell bottoms. Um, and her husband um, is still alive, and I interviewed him extensively over that making. And he told me how they would study all these different jeans models, like Swedish jeans and American jeans and Polish jeans, and they would come up with a cut which would crinkle the least under the bottom because Soviet trousers crinkled under the bottom. So in order to not uh, be, have the Soviet trousers there, you, you had to get re, uh, rid of that crinkle and you had to have pockets on all sides. And um, and then, uh, of course, this, these trousers become more and more individualized. So I have one pair survived for a hippie called Shakespeare and um, they're kind of wide leathery type trousers, incredibly large bell bottoms. And above the crotch, there's a little arrow to signify the sexual press of, of Shakespeare. And on the back, there are the Pacific sign to, to signal that he is a hippie and a pacifist. Um, and, um, and then uh, people start uh, putting applique or um, cro uh, stitch work um, uh, 
quotations from Bulgakov I've seen on jeans. Um, and out of this develops actually a whole couture. And this whole couture is perfectly suited to the needs of the late Soviet Union. So the hippie attire are bell-bottom jeans, um, uh, a shirt, uh, usually batik. Sometimes it's an, a shirt taken from the psychiatric hospital where lots of people were incarcerated and died in order to uh, remake it. Um, and then, of course, you had to have a bag. And you had to have a small bag for the internal passport because that's you always have to carry around. And then you had another small bag where you kept um, your your syringe and your, your doses of uh, whatever is your tipple. Um, and uh, then you had a larger bag, which was for traveling, so you could have like one spare shirt. But to have more would, again, be seen as indecent. Um, but so the whole ideology on which they find it so difficult to put it into words and of which we have so little, so few people really have tried to, to write hippie manifestos. There were some, but really compared to the number of people, um, very little. So every all the expression of who they are actually really goes into, into that clothing and into their tailoring um, and it, it becomes completely linked up, including, of course, the long hair. And the best thing about long hair, it's for free. And it's it's not even, you don't even have to jump through that hoop of being a materialist, anti-materialist, or an anti-materialist materialist. Yeah, actually, I think some of the um, best stories are about, um, from my interviews, were with hippies about making their clothes and uh, and all of the things that they did to to make sure they had the right the right kind of clothes that they wanted to be seen in um, the the darker side as you said there are definitely dark sides to um, uh, the hippie movement drugs being one um, and the other is, you address in in your chapter on madness and um, you argue that as the Soviet hippies make clear, madness was a weapon as well as a sentence. Um, describe how the Soviet state used psychiatric treatment against hippies and how the hippies used their own um, quote unquote craziness against the state. Yeah, so I mean, it's, it's again, it's an interesting conference and it's again, it's an interesting adaption of uh, what was obviously originally um, a Western import to the Soviet um, condition. So hippies did not like to go to the uh, to the army, um, and um, I mean, the, not evading conscription was a big issue in uh, the Western hippie crowd as well. But in the uh, in the Soviet Union, it was compulsory for everybody. So it wasn't even like about being in the wrong part of the lottery. Um, and at the same time, you had a tradition started already earlier um, of defining schizophrenia in a particularly broad way. And it's, it's sort of a, a bit difficult to, to trace uh, what is the chicken and the egg was the schizophrenia defined in that broad way in order to allow the incarceration of dissidents or did the incarceration of dissidents happen because uh, in psychiatric hospitals because there was that particularly form of sluggish schizophrenia um, Propagated, pioneered by uh, Professor Snezhevsky um, at the Serbsky Institute, uh, who was actually a respected uh, psychiatrist. And by all accounts, um, there are a couple of memoirs from his co-workers. He was um, a con he, he was convicted of his the righteousness of his uh, theories. Um, so it's it's a very complicated process of uh, who is acting and what faith there. But the the 
the, basically the, the fact was that um, the Soviet Union had a much wider definition of uh, schizophrenia than um, in, in the West. And they especially had that uh, sluggish schizophrenia, which was defined as a schizophrenia hidden, um, but present even without symptoms, which of course allowed um, a diagnosis for almost um, everybody. Um, and since basically Khrushchev had stopped the practice of um, incarcerating political prisoners in um, political dissidents into prisons, um, from about the mid-60s onwards, um, there is a trend of uh, increased incarceration of dissidents in psychiatric um, hospitals. Um, there are places even beforehand in the 1930s, but really that's when it, it, it starts. And the hippies um, knew about it. And as I say, the hippies were always a very well-informed um, community. And um, so they, they knew, and there was already in the late 60s, people knew that if they pretended to be mad, they would get that diagnosis of schizophrenia. They would spend a few months um, in a psychiatric hospital, um, and then they would be free for life. They would never be conscripted again. And on plus, they would have that um stamp in their passport a particular card they would be on they would be known as schizophrenics which also actually gave them a certain leeway of maneuver because if you're mad you can't be held responsible so there there was a certain kind of trade in that um and um people start um basically trying to get that uh, diagnosis of schizophrenia in all sorts of ways and um I, I just actually, I mean, I, I cite a few examples. I have this hippie in Lvov who was a very beautiful hippie and he liked to paint his face and he just basically went into full hippie montour into the Bayern Kamat, into the recruitment office and said, I'm here. And they're like, who are you? Are you abnormal? And he got, uh, basically, he got the diagnosis of schizophrenia there and then. And I start the chapter with, with a more dramatic story of um, somebody actually shooting up ephedrine um, right on Gorky Street and the ambulance comes and he gets collected and he gets schizophrenia. Um, sometimes people get pathology, pathologia, um, not schizophrenia. Now um, my, my hippies are discussing the, my book at the moment and there are many more stories coming out. So there's also a few people who come in and say, I really want to go into the army. And they're like, why do you want to serve in the army? It's like, I want to kill somebody. And they get schizophrenia too. So there are many routes to the same result. Um, and, and then um, until 72, it, it was quite harsh. You had to sit for about half a year in the psychiatric hospital and you were quite often forcefully medicated, but experiences vary. Later, it comes down to almost only six weeks. Um, and um, really there is no male hippie who, almost no male hippie who is committed, who has served in the army. It was the absolutely um, rough and ready route to, to evade. Um, and of course, as I say, there were many people in these psychiatric institutions deemed insane by the Soviet state who were just very different. And, and, and of course, I mean, it, it would be wrong to say there was only a Soviet problem because the war over psychiatry was fought at exactly the same time in the 1960s in the West. It, it just, there was more of an open discussion and therefore you had, for example, the, the anti-psychiatric movements which claimed for open asylums, um, especially in Italy, but also in France. Um, well, of course, in the Soviet Union, they turned more and more into... Um, enforcers of, of a certain kind of repression. And of course, the flip side of having this diagnosis, of having achieved that freedom of being mad, was that you could be collected at any 
stayed uh, from the street and incarcerated at, at the will of the state for your own safeguarding. But of course, it happened to be always on Soviet holidays when Nixon comes to Moscow, when the Olympic Games happen. Um, so there was a certain loss of, of freedom as well. There was certainly a certain loss of citizens' rights, as few as there were in the Soviet Union. Yeah, and I know, as I'm sure you've heard, that um, it it wasn't um, it wasn't a, a stay at a resort um, in a Soviet hospital, and there was uh, quite a bit of uh, mistreatment and and as you said, enforced medication um, for those who were uh, particularly incarcerated um, over the course of their lives um, when they would get picked up. Um, so the last chapter, Gurla, I, I can honestly say that this is one of the most intellectually exciting book chapters that I've read in quite a while. Um, and what started as an attempt to make visible women in the history of Soviet hip- hippiedom became, um, for you, a, an experiment in writing the role of the historian in historical analysis. And I found this just a really wonderful chapter. So talk to us about both women in the Soviet hippie movement and about how you approach telling their story. Yeah, thank you for, for the compliment. It's, it's, it's definitely my p- most personal chapter, as, as um, you have, have pointed out, and therefore it, it means a lot that um, people think it worked out because it was an experiment and it was also a certain amount of risk um, because it can also become very banal if you write yourself into the story. Um I mean, initially, I found it very hard to find um, women. Um, I was um, handed, I had a a woman very early on in Riga, but then as I hit the Moscow circuit, um, I always asked, and were there women? And like, yeah, there were lots of women. There were half women. There were lots of, we were equal. We were girls and boys. And then I said, so can you pass me on? Who, Who was there? Who... And then they would literally, it would turn out, they would, didn't remember their names. They remembered the names of all their male friends and they didn't remember the women's names. And I think Terry Thomas, who made that documentary film about Soviet hippies, she had the same problem that um, she really wanted, she's a female filmmaker, she really wanted to tell a story that uh, showed men and women. And she ended up with a very lopsided uh, cast of protagonists who, who were men. So initially I, I kept that chapter because... I felt like I have to I have to counter that head on because if if they are so hard to find, the only way of to make them visible is by giving them a special a special place. And and of course the frustrating thing was that I very early on realized there were some really significant uh, women in the movement who really pushed it forward and made it survive over um, over time, uh, this woman, Sveta Markova, um, who I mentioned, who was this big tailor, and she got expelled in 1974 uh, uh, from the Soviet Union and ended up in California. And before I could find her, she died of breast cancer. So I only found her husband. And then Ophelia, who was her best friend, who had died in 1991 of a um, drug overdose, but nobody really knows because she died in the flat of one of her friends and um, they were so afraid of her death that they threw her into the river and um, didn't tell anybody and she was only found three months later um, and it's it's one it was one of these badly guarded secrets of the dark side of of a Soviet hippodrome which everybody whispered to me um, in uh, sort of in in the corner but um, only later on somebody actually went on record and, and told me the story 
But um, and and then there were other. There was the daughter of a diplomat called Masha Stadnitzer who came back, who clearly figured very prominently in the beginning, was completely forgotten. Um, so I started out concentrating on trying to reconstruct the story of these women in particular. And because the book is sort of both a big, broad history and then it's thematic, there are very few figures who come out really in a chronological order. But I made a point to really give these people, give this woman a chronology. Um, and I started that right in the beginning of the book. And then, I, as, I, as you know, the book dragged on. I spent 12 years on it. Um, I had children. The times went on. Um, Me Too came about. And I suddenly realized um, what was first sort of almost a little bit of an embarrassing chapter actually was something which had moved much more into the center of discussion um, again. And I also started to think differently of what does it actually mean if voices get forgotten? Why why do voices get forgotten? Even though everybody agrees they were there, but their voices aren't, aren't there. And then interestingly, demography kind of worked, I don't know, in my favor, but it certainly did its bit because uh, Russian men don't live as long as Russian women. And um, while initially I only found men, um, by the end of my book, um, there are more women um, around than men these days. And if you know, if you see who is populating the social media channels, that's uh, at least 60% um, women. So their voices kind of came up from the underground um, by sheer elimination of the voices which were sitting on top of them. And um, all of that, um, basically, I, I thought, I want to write all of this in this chapter. I sort of want to combine it with that historical analysis of, of how did women experience hippiedom differently? Who were these hippie movie women movers and shakers? And that basically ended up me writing myself and my personal ideas, and especially that sort of clash between... Uh, me and my view. So on the one hand, I felt that great affinity to hippie women because I'm a woman um, that we immediately established a sort of kind of female uh, rapport quite often, uh, which was different to the rapport I established with men, which could also happen, but it was on a different level. Uh, and, and especially once I started going with children to Russia and doing interviews um it, it really was was there. And, and on the other hand, I was this Western woman and I couldn't hide it. I had Western ideas about what it meant to be equal or emancipated. And they were not shared with my subjects. But on the other hand, they also felt that they were emancipated, even though they would wash the jeans of their male friends and they did the cooking at the hippie camp and... Um, um, and then there were the stories, these these really dark stories coming out of, um, you know, there was violence. Of course, there was violence. It's a it's a um, society which left, which lived, um, practiced free love, and free love, whether it's free love for one, is is sort of kind of coercion for the other, and the coercion could be just a kind of moral coercion. This is how hippies do it, or it could be outright rape. Um, and and all of this, I, I basically packaged together in this this chapter, and 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 try to um, to be true to all these sim seemingly disparate strings of thought and evidences, um, and was hoping for the best at something <laughs> kind of halfway intellectual and. Um, logical would come come out of it um and this is why i'm really happy when you say you you like that chapter because um i didn't in the end answer all my questions i didn't iron out all the contradictions i found um but by putting them on paper i felt it was the most honest chapter or honest piece i've ever um written and i also 
wrote something which, of course, goes most into the intimate sphere of my protagonists. But I hope I've done it in a way which doesn't mean it feels like a violation. Um, and because I felt that very keenly, and then I felt that, of course, again, very keenly, because I'm a woman and now I'm a woman on social media and I see how women are treated on social media. And, and uh, how do you get at a woman at social media? You actually, you immediately go into her sexuality, you go onto her exterior. So all these mechanisms, which I kind of observed, I, I found played out um, as, as my own social sphere was, was changing. Um, so as, as I said to you before we started recording at the moment, um, the, a group of hippies is, is uh, translating my book via a translation machine and discussing it. And they're now at the chapter of madness and the next one is going to be Gala. And I'm kind of really interested, also a bit worried. This is the first time they're going to see it played back. And this is, as I say, it's the most intimate chapter for me, but it's also the most intimate chapter for them. Yeah, and I think that um, is also a really fascinating experience to have... Um, your um your your subjects um expressing their own opinions on uh your work about them and which is a very vulnerable position as a historian as well um and has as we were talking about earlier so um but I do encourage everyone to read this book because um, it is a really good story about hippies. And it is also, um, I think, a very um, excellent work of historical analysis. And I certainly enjoyed it. And Julian, I, Juliana, I really appreciate that the time that you've given us uh, to talk about this book. And um, I've been looking forward to reading this book um, and I'm excited that it's out. And I know you are very happy that it's out because it has um, encompassed a large portion of your life. Um, but I'd like to ask you in closing what you're working on now. So, um, I mean, I'm in the very beginning. I'm, I'm still recovering <laughs> from writing this book. But um, I, I realized that um, in the end, uh, one of the questions which was always looming over it uh, was, uh, so what happened in the end of the Soviet Union? Why, um, and I realized that I find that perestroika is um, the most under-researched and yet uh, most key um, period, really, of where both the past gets distilled and the future determined. Um, but I also really enjoyed writing stories and recovering stories which otherwise might be lost. So the, the new project is titled Perestroika from Below. And um, it's actually, I, I, I'm going to do actually 12 case studies or something in that region of, um, of people who contributed and, and acted their own perestroika. And I really this time um, want to make them um, true on a promise I always make every time, but I, I, I hope I fully will do it this time, going away from Moscow and Leningrad and really going into the periphery. Um, I have one theater in Tashkent I'm really interested in, run by an offshoot of one of uh, the hippie community, um, a, a guy theater, a gay theater maker, then became very famous in the in the in the 90s and got murdered in 2007 for putting on homosexual plays in in Tashkent. But her theater was the Tashkent hotspot uh, for people who were interested in reforms and um, also in uh, negotiating a different kind of relationship between, of course, the sort of um, 
periphery and an ethnically different periphery and 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 the center um and there, there are a couple of other examples i already have on my mind but that's that's where i want to go i would like to go out again into the field and interview people um and i would like to continue that idea of um of being true to the subjective voice of of uh, the author because uh, one thing i really learned in 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 working on a topic which i really had to start from scratch um, is that of course general these resources i generate them as much as uh, my interview partners as people who have written documents um and because i was so aware of my outsider status um in the soviet hippie community i'm i'm not a hippie i'm not the right age i'm i'm not um soviet russian um from the region but of course this outsider status is is always there you're always an outsider of the historical stories um you're right and you have to make sense of that outsider status and how it relates to your your topic and what you can bring and what you can't bring to the topic and and of course initially and the, the, the hippies still struggle with that for example one of the big discussions in that facebook group about my book is how well can she do it not having come from the outside but i firmly believe that as an outsider and with my very own personal history i bring something to the topic which nobody else can like everybody is so every book is unique every approach is unique and in a way the reader deserves to know a bit more about this uniqueness of the interpretation and i i would like to be more more open about it so i would like to continue that as well in that new project and um I'm even thinking of of doing something maybe completely different of actually saying looking into my family history saying and what what is my experience as a Soviet historian I can bring to my own personal history but that, that's a, that's a very far off side project but that of course is the logical conclusion of that. Yeah. Well, these are exciting projects and I look forward to hearing about them as you're working on them and um reading the book when the book comes out. So thank you again for this oh, yes. conversation. And um, and I, I really appreciate your time, and I appreciate the book. So thanks so much. Well, I I would like to to thank you, and I also actually I should say here, and I want to say that in in the podcast is um, that of course one part of my story are the Kaunas events of 1972, and I completely relied on your 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 work there as as a as a as a guide and an interpretive. Um, source and um so you are part of that book and part of that story too <laughs> well i'm glad to be a part of it um because um i agree uh, uh researching uh, soviet hippies and uh interviewing soviet soviet hippies is is was has been quite a world to enter into so i'm i'm glad that i'm also part of your story thanks so much well thank you so much